This week on the Backtable Podcast. It's going to be challenging trying to sell this to policymakers, but I think it's time to reevaluate our outcome measures. We've reached a point where it's crucial to manage patients with large core ischemic strokes because we do see a benefit there. But although there is a concern, especially with the front-loaded costs of mechanical thrombectomy, recent cost-effectiveness analysis challenged this nihilistic view showing varying lifetime incremental cost-effectiveness ratios and higher acceptability of endovascular thrombectomy, particularly for the severely disabled patients where societies will ultimately spend the most money on and have the most to lose by not saving. This basically, in my mind, suggests the significant costs involved, the potential benefits, and improved quality-adjusted life years may justify the use of endovascular thrombectomy in patients with pre-existing large core strokes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Krishna Amaluru. I'm a neurointerventional radiologist at Goodman Campbell Brain and Spine in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are back with our neurointerventional radiology slash endovascular neurosurgery section. So today our guest is Dr. Fawaz Al-Mufti. He is the Associate Chair of Neurology for Research at New York Medical College. He's uh, triple boarded in neurology, neurological care, and neuroendovascular surgery. He is the Director of the Neuroendovascular Surgery Fellowship at Westchester, and he is also the incoming Chair of Mission Thrombectomy, which is a wonderful nonprofit organization that's affiliated with the Society of Vascular Interventional Neurology which is dedicated to the expansion of stroke thrombectomy in lower and middle income countries across the world. Fawaz, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Krishna, thanks a lot, man. Great to be here. Absolutely. You know, just to start, perhaps you could uh, just kind of introduce the topic of stroke thrombectomy for patients presenting with large ischemic cores. Uh, What is a large core? Why is it important that we study these patients? Yeah, no, of course, this has been something that's been in the works for for many many years so as i'm sure many of the uh, listeners are aware like we started out doing endovascular thrombectomy for uh, large vessel occlusion ischemic strokes initially in the anterior circulation and the all the trials initially were focused on patients with small and absent complete infar- completed infarction so very very small ischemic cores likely to maximize the probability of detecting a clinically meaningful statistically significant benefit of endovascular thrombectomy. EVT has been the standard of care for anterior circulation strokes uh, for elbow and small to medium uh, sized ischemic cores, basically like probably best defined with using the aspect score, usually an aspect score of six to 10. And a core volume 
if you're going to go with CT perfusion or an MR perfusion or an MRI, uh, like a, a core volume less than 70 cc's. And that's been going on for several years. Fawaz, I should just say, you know, for the audience members that are not particularly familiar with an aspect score, an aspect score is a 10-point scale that can be determined on a non-contrast CT, which assigns one point for every area of hypodensity determined to have pretty high uh, specificity and sensitivity for already infarcted brain. So potentially parenchymal uh, lesions that are irreversible, so not included in penumbral penumbral slash salvageable tissue. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, exactly. So basically after we've conquered the, the smaller strokes, real world experience basically starts to suggest that like patients with larger ischemic cores at presentation may also benefit from endovascular thrombectomy. And since then, there've been several large retrospective and prospective randomized clinical trials that have been published that further validate this approach. So let's just kind of get into the, uh, you know, the devil's always is always in the details. Let's, uh, you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit before, but let's kind of define what is large core. And I think some of the problem with prior data is that there are so many different definitions. How, how should one define what is a large core? And let's just go, let's go through some of the evidence of, of what defines a large core in terms of radiographic criteria, volumetric criteria, and imaging criteria. Yeah, I mean, as I sensed in your voice, you were struggling trying to define it because all of these trials that have been published at this point, they use different definitions, which, which makes it very hard to, for example, generate a a meaningful down the road, a meaningful meta-analysis uh, from all those data. However, a lot of groups are trying. It's not for uh, a lot of people are actually attempting to do this. But generally speaking, in my mind, I usually like I like to define it as like anything with an aspect score, any patient with an aspect score less than six. So five and below would be a larger core stroke, a CT perfusion or DWI MRI volume that's more than 70 cc's. That's probably going to be considered a larger core stroke. I would say most people would probably agree with it, with, with that definition. Yeah. And again, you, you kind of mentioned it, you know, there are even, even further sub-analyses of which, you know, we may get into later on of subpopulation analysis. So specifically aspect score zero to two, which is a special population two to five, and even volumetric analysis of, you know, up to 50, 50 to 70, and in certain situations, you know, greater than 120, 150. But for the purposes of a general conversation today, I, I think, yeah, an aspect score of less than six or a volumetric uh, analysis demonstrating core tissue of greater than 50 cc's. I think that's a very conservative definition of, of what is defined as a, a, as a large core. And I think, uh, again, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, the difficulty of these these trials Specifically, this year is yes. The uh, the definitions are are all different across um, these different trials. So you know, let's just kind of get into it. So so performing thrombectomy typically is done in the anterior circulation patients presenting. You know, uh, at least from the Hermes data and diffuse three and dawn criteria within 24 hours of an anterior circulation stroke with with a small core. What are some of the previously held beliefs of the risks of performing thrombectomy in someone, say, with a large core as we have defined it? What are some of the 
traditionally held beliefs of why interventionalists were reluctant to perform thrombectomy on these patients? I mean, the the general concern is, um, am I going to open up this blood vessel and open up the floodgates into a friable brain tissue that is already infarcted, already dead tissue? So what are you really trying to reperfuse? And I think, I mean, I, I think there is to some extent some truth to that. We're not saying that every large core stroke is amenable to endovascular thrombectomy. We're saying early large core strokes may be amenable to a thrombectomy. And one of the issues is many of these trials use different timelines and time cutoff to enroll patients. In my mind, usually I think of the core as how well established the stroke is. Is it a completely established stroke? Is it a completed stroke? I mean, is the tissue dark? Colleague recently described the aspect score as not only defining, like looking at patients with early ischemic changes, like uh, mild sulcal effacement, uh, very mild loss of gray, wh- gray white matter differentiation. But no, we're talking about like patients with like completed, it's all dark. So this colleague basically said, he he describes it as like uh, similar to their, to steak. It's like, it like rare, wet, medium rare, well done. And sometimes the core is completely well done. There's nothing there to save. And maybe in those patients, we shouldn't be doing thrombectomy. I don't know. But I would say some of the reluctance has primarily been hemorrhagic transformation of a stroke. And in that case, people are always concerned, like, did I cause this to the patient? And as we... Like, uh, like as we delve deeper into the data, we'll be able to touch on whether that's really the case or not. I think it is important to, to recognize that previous data on the Hermes data, which is pooled analysis of the six major landmark trials, did there, there were retrospective studies on the Hermes data. And I'm just going to kind of uh, wrote some of these statistics that, you know, many of us based traditional practices on. You know, if you look at the Hermes data, retrospective analysis of patients coming in with aspect scores of zero to four, you know, the functional outcome, good functional outcomes of MRS zero, one, or two were on the order of 20 to 25%. So, you know, you're talking about a, 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 a very small proportionality of patients in within the larger Hermes data that were having what we defined as good clinical outcomes, MRS zero, one, or two. And so a lot of our prior practices were based on data such as, as this. Certainly hemorrhagic transformation uh, and whether the interventionalists may have contributed to that. Is there a pathophysiologic basis for why patients with large ischemic cores who undergo recanalization are at a higher risk for hemorrhagic malignant transformation? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the exact answer on a cellular level. What I do know is like at some point as the cells continue to die, as they go through, like they they lose their cellular integrity and are unable to regulate transcellular mobilization of like a transcellular flow in and out of the cell, they start to swell. And that ultimately contributes to like a breakdown in the blood-brain barrier. And that's probably part of the reason why some patients will have some degree of hemorrhagic transformation. But it's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the uh, the complete answer to that. Okay. Yeah, certainly a, a, a complicated uh, pathophysiology. So Fawaz, you know, 2023 uh, was a pretty big year for studying uh, patients with 
large ischemic cores. Can you kind of uh, just take us through some of the major preliminary findings from some of these trials, such as the Rescue Japan trial, the uh, Select2 trial, the Tesla trial. Uh, what, what have we learned in preliminary findings from these large core studies? So in the large core trials, the one unifying feature amongst all of these trials is that there's like compelling statistical evidence favoring the approach like a, a mechanical thrombectomy over best medical management alone. I think that's like the, 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 the unifying theme amongst these trials. Now, these trials, unfortunately, there were like a lot of differences as far as like their imaging, major imaging inclusion criteria from a, uh, like for just as an example, tension, last and Tesla, as well as Rescue Japan primarily relied on aspect score. Last did include MRI, uh, a good number percent percentage of patients included MRI, DWI aspects. But those four trials, Tension, Last, Tesla, and Rescue Japan, primarily relied on aspect score. Select 2 definitely relied more heavily on uh, CT perfusion. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I should have mentioned uh, Angel Aspect also relied on aspect score. But Select 2 primarily relied on CT perfusion. What we noticed is like in almost all of these trials, there was a, uh, a, a substantial benefit in terms of improved functional independence and uh, ambulatory status at 90 days. So just to delve a little bit deeper into these trials, Rescue Japan reported an increased uh, odds of independent ambulation of uh, 2.4. Tesla trial demonstrated significant increased odds of like an MRS of 0 to 3 with mechanical thrombectomy at 30% versus best medical management at 20%. And this was statistically significant. Angel Aspect and Select 2 trials both consistently demonstrated higher odds of independent ambulation and functional independence at 90 days with endovascular therapy. With regards to tension, uh, tension involved almost 250 patients. And there was also a notable shift in the distribution of MRS towards better outcome, favoring endovascular treatment over medical therapy. Also, odds ratio uh, 2.58. Interim analysis echoed a similar shift favoring endovascular therapy and rates of independent neurological outcomes of moderate neurological outcomes at 90 days were, again, primarily favored endovascular therapy over best medical therapy. Data from the last trial, which was probably the last a large core trial that was presented, it was presented as SLICE and most recently, the first time in North America, presented at the Society of Vascular Interventional Neurology's annual meeting last uh, November, and that trial indicated a shift in the distribution of MRS, 90-day uh, MRS, towards better outcomes favoring endovascular treatments, odds ratio of 1.63. While not reaching also, while not reaching statistical significance, there were trends in the data favoring endovascular therapy in achieving an MRS of 0 to 2 and 0 to 3 at 180 days. There was also some symptomatic ICH uh, rates were slightly higher in the endovascular thrombectomy group, 9.6 versus 5.7%. But the EVT demonstrated a lower all-cause mortality at both 90 days and 180 days. And correct me if I'm wrong, the symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, which again, which is something that we previously just touched upon, that finding was not consistent throughout these trials, correct? No, exactly. It was not consistent throughout the trials, exactly. So... I think it's important to kind of talk about our prior benchmark of success with, you know, Hermes data and up to this point, large vessel trials. 
uh, the benchmark being functional outcome MRS01 or two at 90 days. That really is, ha has been the benchmark. Can you just kind of comment on why these trials examining specifically MRS of five versus six, which is death, why is that such an important topic slash issue in these large core trials? And, and, and a lot of this was discussed in the SVIN meeting. And I certainly think that it's important for our audience to recognize this concept because I think, you know, walking through the hospital, you may or may not have doctors coming up to you and saying, hey, Krishna, so thrombectomy on large core patients shows uh, it's a great thing, it's a benefit, right? And I think uh, that certainly needs to be dissected a little bit. So, you know, certainly from patient perspective, and, and there is evidence to suggest that patients' families looking down the, the road after a, a traumatic event, in, in many situations, patients' families actually come away feeling better if, you know, unfortunately their, their loved one ended up passing away from a traumatic event such as a large uh, core stroke. And certainly an MRS of five, uh, which is bedridden, incontinent, requiring significant amount of nursing care, is actually in many instances worse than an MRS of six. So can you kind of just talk to us about that concept of what do these trials show us in terms of are we achieving a better outcome if the goalpost is actually avoiding an MRS of five? Can you kind of talk to, uh, a little bit about that? I mean, it's a great question. Uh, I don't disagree. I mean, I think our main fear is, am I converting patients who are normally like, like allowing for natural, like uh, the natural history of this disease, which we know is terrible. Are we converting these patients from an MRS of six, which is death to an MRS of five? And that I, I think inarguably would be the nightmare for many of us, but more importantly for the families and their caregivers, because I don't disagree with you. I think that is worse than death, in my opinion. I mean, again, I respect people's individual individuality and their right to, uh, to life. And I always say to my patients, at least I always think to myself, I'm like, who am I to withhold a life-saving intervention from these patients? So I usually have this discussion and be I'm very, very clear on this issue. Some people, due to cultural, religious, or social barriers, or like they feel that they, they value life at all costs. And I respect that. There are others who say, no, if my loved one is not able to return to themselves, uh, to themselves, and they're able to enjoy a walk in the park, uh, a slice of cheesecake, or even a cigarette, that's not a life worth living. These are people who value quality of life. And I think a lot of our job is essentially trying to understand that. And uh, I think you and I have had this discussion multiple times. I don't disagree. I'm usually very scared to convert a patient who is normally going to die into now lingering in a nursing home for the rest of their, their lives. But what's interesting is that trials actually didn't necessarily show that. And off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly where the, like the, the, the shift analysis looked in all of these trials, but I do recall that select true trial, just as an example, showed that endovascular thrombectomy reduced by 50% the number of MRS5 patients. And Angel Aspect, similarly, also reduced the 
the number of uh, uh, patients with, who ended up with an MRS of five by 50% compared to best medical management. So I think- That is correct, I, yeah. I share your concerns, but that, like, I don't believe the trials demonstrated that, which was, which was a good thing. Yeah, no, that's why I wanted you to, to kind of get into uh, the fact that these trials did show on the order of a decrease in MRS of five of roughly 50%, which I think is very important for our audience to, to recognize. Performing thrombectomy on a certain select population, which we should also say, I think none of the trials included patients over the age of 80 or 85. I, I believe most were 80. We can definitively say that the evidence suggests that we are not taking patients that would have normally have died from medical management and converting them into MRS of fives. And I think that is a very, very important takeaway point from these large, these large trials. Fawaz, thanks for that uh, great summary of the trial data. I think our audience would appreciate, you know, evidence suggests that the Hermes data, when all things were considered, the, the number needed to, the number of patients needed to treat for, you know, medical benefit was 2.6. And that's a, you know, it's a heavily cited number. Are you aware of a number needed to treat for clinical benefit in patients presenting with large core ischemic lesions? I'm not sure I know the exact number, but I mean, you know the number of patients needed to treat to ensure one patient has a, a significant clinical improvement in the small core uh, trials. Like you said, it's like 2.6 to 3, just like in Dawn and the Hermes uh, registry. But as, as we move into an era where we're treating patients with larger cores, strokes at presentation, like my guess is like then this number needed to treat is going to increase. This is a, like it's a natural expectation of technological diffusion to treat a broader set of patients. And then the recent large core, uh, core trials, the number needed to treat is estimated probably in the high 20s, which is not unlike the number needed to treat for many of the widespread coronary interventions. So it's kind of incumbent upon our field to prospectively track patients' outcomes, ideally in a standardized manner so data can be pooled across many sites to assess the number needed to treat in real world. There's no doubt that, and again, just a, there's no doubt that it's our responsibility. It's incumbent upon the endovascular practitioners, hospitals, and health systems to understand the implications of these trials and to determine how to best incorporate the lessons from these trials into their own specific practice settings. I think that times where we're going to see a patient miraculously start to walk out, walk out of the hospital with these large core strokes at least, I think that's going to be much lower. Lazarus effect is going to be lower than we see with the smaller core strokes. But I think ultimately what these trials are telling us is that there will be a benefit. We will have an increased number of patients with an MRS of 0 to 2 and 0 to 3 and overall a smaller number of patients with an MRS of 5. Certainly. So switching gears now, you know, it seems as neurointerventionalists get further and further along the stroke experience, the inclusion criteria for, for, for patients being treated is, is becoming larger and larger. First, it was time windows of salvageable tissue. Now it's, uh, you know, large core and possibly medium and small vessel occlusions. What, in your opinion, is the financial and social burdens of trial data such as this you know, just some things to think about is the United States, maybe even the world, ready to take on a, a, a burden such as this? And I'd love to hear your opinions because 
Obviously, you're very heavily involved in MT2020, but, uh, you know, kind of let's just uh, kind of delve into to that aspect of the situation. It's definitely a question on the minds of like a lot of people and the data from all of these trials, if anything, is highly supportive of a reduced burden on society because you're reducing the number of patients with a like a overall a modified ranking score of four and five, which is where the bulk of like uh, expenses go. And you're, you're basically losing individuals who are potentially can contribute to society. That's basically what Mission Thrombectomy does and what we're trying to like extrapolate to the whole world. So this uh, uh, European consortium study recently showed that a lifetime incremental cost effectiveness ratio varying between two and $11,000 per quality adjusted life year with mechanical thrombectomy was, was basically demonstrated with mechanical thrombectomy, sorry. The most significant cost Saving comes from decreasing the number of patients with an MRS of four and five. And Mike Chen from the uh, from Chicago published a fantastic review on this topic, where they they basically provide an overview of the socioeconomic implications of successful treatment of patients with large core strokes. And they build a very solid case for doing it, despite the 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 fear people may have. But they cite this interesting paper that basically found mechanical thrombectomy yielding a higher lifetime benefit with almost 2.2 quality adjusted life years um, versus 1.41 quality adjusted life years despite marginal higher lifetime cost per patient. So the difference of 0.79 quality adjusted life years equates to 288 additional days of healthy life per patient. This incremental cost effectiveness ratio is was was almost 16,000 quality adjusted life years. And the number needed to treat for one additional patient to achieve a modified ranking score of zero to two and modified ranking of zero to three or seven and five respectively. Overall, I think there is going to be a benefit there. And even from a societal perspective, apart from the, the front-loaded cost of thrombectomy, for the society, there will be a benefit because you're reducing the number of patients with an MRS of four and five. Those are fascinating statistics, you know, from a greater public health initiative aspect, what can doctors slash advocates for these data, how can we relate that to policymakers in terms of, you know, what, what financial and socioeconomic effect uh, mechanical thrombectomy has on these patient populations? It's going to be challenging trying to sell this to policymakers, but I think I think it's time to reevaluate our outcome measures. We've reached a point where it's crucial to manage patients with large core ischemic strokes because we do see a benefit there. But although there is a concern, especially with the uh, uh, front-loaded, higher concern for like uh, like front-loaded costs of mechanical thrombectomy, recent cost-effectiveness analysis challenged this nihilistic view showing varying lifetime incremental cost-effectiveness ratios, and higher acceptability of endovascular thrombectomy, particularly for the severely disabled patients where societies will ultimately spend the most money on and have the most to lose by not saving. This basically, in my mind, suggests the significant costs involved, the potential benefits, and improved quality-adjusted life years may justify the use of endovascular thrombectomy in patients with pre-existing large core strokes. 
Fawaz, that's a great point. You know, being the incoming chair of Mission Thrombectomy, what can you speak a little bit about the implications of these findings for thrombectomy expansion in, say, lower resource settings or lower socioeconomic areas of the world where advanced imaging such as CT perfusion or, or say, MRI is not as readily available? I mean, there's there's no doubt there's going to be there are, there are going to be major challenges to implementation of endovascular thrombectomy for all on a global level. I still believe so. Mission thrombectomy is basically geared towards expanding mechanical thrombectomy availability on a like a on a global level. Like at this point, we're in a like a, more than a hundred countries, a hundred regional, more than a hundred regional committees, and it's basically a like we provide like it's a peer network of volunteers. With one goal essentially to do that, but we've realized initially we started working from like a bottom-up approach. You're trying to bring in, educate people and physicians to do mechanical thrombectomy, but then we realized that's not where the problem is, or like that's not where all the problem lies. Like a significant issue is in the healthcare like policy and making inflicting this change on a larger level. So we decided to take a like a top-down approach and reach out to policymakers and explain to them. Exactly what I was describing earlier, that you will benefit, your society will benefit by saving these patients. Because at this point, you have a 50-year-old man who's at the peak of their, or like a woman in the peak of their career, and all of a sudden now they're a burden on society. That definitely becomes an issue. So we've tried our level best to essentially put this together, like a, like under the like the leadership of Dilip Javagal and. And uh, like uh, and others and like uh, in the society of vascular interventional neurology to essentially simplify this to explain to policymakers that there is a huge benefit to this and that it is definitely worth the investment. Now, I don't know if I will be advocating for endovascular thrombectomy for large core strokes just yet because many of these places. I mean, we recently published the the empty glass uh, paper that showed this incredible disparity in terms of like a number of patients who are receiving mechanical thrombectomy today. And this is using the like the, uh, the the more broader, the broader, less strict, smaller core strokes, let alone larger core strokes. I, I would venture to say very, very few people globally are receiving this, unfortunately. And even in the United States, I think it's going to take, uh, there, there's going to be it's going to be an uphill battle. I don't think it's going to be easy to implement. Although I will say, like the numbers, uh, these numbers are increasing. We are getting these referrals and these transfers are increasing. No, uh, I don't know what's it like in your uh, in your shop, Krishna. Are you guys getting more uh, large core stroke being transferred over? You know, that's a really interesting interesting question because when the Dawn and Diffuse three trial data came out, the expected values were a forty percent increase in thrombectomy numbers. And I think, practically speaking, we, I don't think we saw that just because, you know, similar to registry data, we were already treating patients outside of the typical six-hour time window. We have not seen as great an uptick in volume of large core uh, strokes. And I think a lot of that is due to education of emergency medicine personnel, neurology personnel, uh, radiology personnel medical personnel in general. So we've certainly perhaps gotten maybe a couple more phone calls, but I don't know. I guess practically speaking, we have not seen a large uptick in volume. It just, th this data has not, you know, kind of 
filtered through the real world personnel. Yeah, I agree with you. I think initially we were expecting a larger, like a uh, uh, a larger number of like uh, thrombectomy cases, and because we were definitely a higher volume site, and we we had already done our outreach, we've already discussed with our partners in our community uh, stroke centers to transfer these patients. We didn't really see a huge number. However, a lot of sites definitely did see a, a large number of increased referrals. With regards to large core strokes, like it's it's hard to tell. Based on the data, I believe large core strokes probably represent approximately 20% of all ischemic strokes due to large vessel occlusions. I do personally think that there, like the, the recent trials are probably going to increase the number of uh, large vessel occlusion strokes taken to the angiosphere for endovascular thrombectomy. But I don't necessarily think it's going to increase the number of transfers. I think it's going to be more within our own sites, our own centers, patients that we typically didn't take. We're now going to be more like a little bit more brave and we will start taking these patients. Sure. On that note, actually, this because this came up a lot in the SVIN uh, meeting, uh, you know, in your opinion, is there a need to repeat C- head CT imaging at the hub hospital after, say, a transfer to evaluate for aspect progression? What are you guys doing in your practice? I used to repeat it. I think after the presentation of uh, uh, the last trial that showed, which was probably the only one that had that included a large number of patients with an aspect score of zero to two, there was essentially no difference in the patients between receiving thrombectomy if they had an aspect score, baseline aspect score of zero to two or zero to, or, or three to five. So repeating or like a CT head, in my mind at this point, I'm not sure it's going to change anything because uh, I think I'm going to have to take this patient anyway. I may repeat it if they received TPA, for example, just to make sure they didn't have hemorrhagic transformation. And I think we're going to see a larger number of patients being transferred directly to the angio suite. And we'll probably do a CT, like a, an expert CT or a dynast CT on the table, just to make sure that there's no massive hemorrhage that you need to address before, and you do, you may need to reverse your TPA or TNK. Certainly. On that note, Fawaz, how do you think your clinical management of these patients will change or not change based on late time window presenters uh, using you know, aspect score, CT perfusion, and or MRI uh, imaging capabilities. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not sure my imaging protocol is going to necessarily change right away. I, I still think that there is a benefit to performing uh, a CT head and a CT CTA as well as a CT perfusion. Although there's like excellent data, like more more recently coming out, uh, published by our dear colleague Tan Nguyen, published in JAMA Neurology recently, looking at exactly that question, non-contrast CT head versus CT perfusion versus MRI in late presentation of strokes, wasn't necessarily large large core strokes, but they basically had like almost 1,600 patients um, in the extended window, large vessel occlusions, and they found that non-contrast CT head was comparable uh, both cl- from a clinical perspective and a safety per- perspective to patients who received CT perfusion and MR imaging. Like I said, I personally don't think I'm going to change my protocol anytime soon. In our practice, again, it hasn't really delayed things significantly. So I still think that there might be some benefit, but if a patient comes in and their aspect is, and again, at this point, I don't usually use CT perfusion if it's less than six hours or I don't rely on it so much. Patients more than six hours, we know that you don't have to do CT perfusion, but 
there is some data that says you may be able to identify patients who are going to do better. And again, it's, it all comes back to your patients and the discussion that you're going to have with your patients. A quick technical question, just because I think some of our audience members might appreciate the uh, in-depth uh, you know, opinions that you may have. When patients present to, to you with a large core, underlying large core tissue, are you changing your, your technique at all? Are you as readily um, amenable to using, say, a stent retriever in combination with an aspiration catheter? And I, I specifically ask you this because I know you have a lot of experience with these newer microcatheterless systems like the Zoom system and you know potentially even the Route 92 systems. You kind of talk to us about you know your change, if anything at all, on how you technically approach these patients. Yeah, you know, I mean, look as as you mentioned, I'm I'm an early adopter of new technology. I enjoy bringing in new stuff. Um, not necessarily sure I would change my approach based on whether the patient has a large core stroke or not. Now, I, I usually use an aspiration catheter to, to begin with, uh, whether it's with a microcatheter or a microcatheter-less uh, system, but I'm pretty quick to like pivot and use a stent retriever if like uh, an aspiration catheter is not opening up the blood vessel. My guess is more and more of these large core strokes are going to be M1 occlusions and MC, like an ICA terminus or tandem occlusions. And in those cases, I think we're going to have to use a combination approach more likely than a, a single aspiration technique just to ensure that we've opened up the blood vessel like in one go. I don't know. Like, do you anticipate a change in your practice, Christian? You know, anecdotally, no. I, I don't, from a technical standpoint, do anything differently. So, so again, that's anecdotal. Uh, I approach these cases regardless of the the underlying core. I think it, it, it should be mentioned that uh, Tension, Last, Tesla, and Rescue uh, Japan trials did not have any stipulation on device uh, used for um, thrombectomy. So I think, you know, that warrants mention. So Fawaz, you know, as we said before, you know, the inclusion criteria for these patients that, that were being treated, that are being treated now is grows larger and larger and the exclusion criteria grows slimmer and slimmer. You know, in your opinion, is there is there any uh, realm right now where thrombectomy remains futile, where you would definitively say, listen, thrombectomy in this patient population certainly warrants not even trial or evidence or, you know, even consideration for hyperbolic uh, circumstances? Yeah. I feel like we're in, in a, a very, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, a uh, very Oprah-like era for endovascular thrombectomy. You get a thrombectomy, you get a thrombectomy. For now, we're showing that it's effective in patients with an aspect score of zero to two. But I would say a patient with a hemorrhagic transformation, existing hemorrhagic transformation with mass effect, I'd probably think twice. A patient with like uh, a very early or ultra early herniation I probably would think twice about this. And also the patients with the, uh, the well-done core, an established stroke that revascularizing is probably futile because it's already dark. It looks like it's more than uh, uh, 24 hours out. I think those would probably ca be cases where I'd be reluctant to take to the angio suite. Also, in, probably in uh, individuals who are like uh, nonagenaries and octogenaries, and this is coming from a person who is dedicated his entire career to like 
studying and advocating for these special populations. But I do believe that these large core strokes in patients who are much older, much more frail, can potentially be counterproductive. And I think the devil's going to be in the details, as you mentioned earlier. And I think once we have, like these randomized control trials are fantastic, but once we have real world data, as we start to expand this and do this beyond the, the, the restrictions of the inclusion and exclusion criteria of randomized controlled trials, I think that's when we're probably going to see the true numbers, the real world numbers. And I think we may have to like uh, correct course at that point. But for now, I would say the well done core, patients with a hemorrhagic transformation with a mass effect and persons uh, like individuals who actively have like early herniation, I probably would withhold from back to me at this point. I agree with everything that you just said. I will also add the late time window presenters. And I think that the data would, would agree with me here. And, and this was, again, something that was echoed in the SPIN meeting. You know, late window time presenters, we're talking 12 to 24 hours of large core strokes. Also, I think warrants a real, real hesitation slash discussion with the family slash medical team in terms of whether that truly will provide overall benefit. Do you agree with that? Uh, I completely agree with that. Completely agree with that. You know, wrapping things up, from my perspective, these large core trials, as you said, are certainly very, very important in terms of bringing the best care to patients that we can. I think from what I have come away from all this data is patients who present with a large core as defined by an aspect score of zero to six in patients less than the age of 80 and in patients who present on the earlier time window talking zero to six hours seems reasonable to consider thrombectomy specifically because there is evidence to suggest that their overall risk of obtaining a functional outcome of an MRS of five is almost half. Is that a fair, overall, very conservative assessment of the trial data in your view? And do you have anything to add to that one to two sentence overall impression of the data that we have at hand? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, no, I, I agree with your assessment. I think going forward, I think the indications for an thrombectomy will continue to expand as they have today, and now they're including patients with large ischemic strokes prior to uh, their interventions, I think we're going to see the expansion of uh, uh, or, or like relaxation of the restrictions on endovascular thrombectomy more and more. And we'll probably, like going forward, I think we're going to start seeing more and more thrombectomies being done on patients with like these special populations, non-engineers, patients in their hundreds, probably going to see more thrombectomies on patients with Modified ranking score, maybe more than two at baseline. But again, I think it's a very exciting period to be in this field. And I think we're all going to be pretty busy. Um, I don't think we're going to be overwhelmed, but I think we're heading in the right direction. And I think we're going to help more and more patients. Fawaz, as always, thank you for uh, your insight and your conversation. I certainly uh, appreciated your opinions and thoughts on a very complicated dynamic subject. Thank you very much, Krishna. This was a lot of fun, as usual. Looking forward to uh, recording the, the next one on, uh, I don't know, basilar artery occlusions? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we will see. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, 
and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Mandir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lui Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 